Uh, well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, please help me now in my weakness to preach your word faithfully. Uh, Lord, it's sometimes hard to understand a culture and a time that is so distant from our own. Uh, but Lord, give us uh, insight into your passage tonight, which was written so long ago. Help us to see you as the great God that you are. And Father, I pray that we would see Jesus as the great Saviour that he is. Uh, please speak to us now through your word. Help us to listen to that word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, the feeling of helplessness is a terrible feeling. Uh, I remember one of the first times I felt helpless in life. Uh, I was at my nana's house. Uh, I was a kid at the time. And I managed to get myself locked in the boot of my dad's car. Uh, I'd been mucking around in Nana's driveway, jumping in and out, and the next minute the lid falls shut and I'm trapped. I can still vividly remember the growing panic, the darkness, the thumping fists on the boot, on the bonnet, on the boot lid, the shouting, the helpless feeling of being trapped. Eventually my brother uh, heard me from Nana's front yard and he came and let me out. But that experience of feeling trapped and helpless has always stuck with me. But you see, you don't have to get stuck in the boot of your dad's car to feel trapped in life, do you? You can feel trapped in the job you hate, in a relationship that you're stuck in. Uh, you can feel trapped in the anxiety or depression that you walk with daily in life. But you see, what makes us feel truly helpless in these kind of circumstances is that we're, when we're convinced no one sees us, no one cares about us, and no one's there to help us. And maybe some of you are actually feeling a bit like that this evening. Well, in Deuteronomy 21, God is showing us that he doesn't ignore those in helpless circumstances. He sees, he cares, and he helps. And we see this in five different cases of helplessness that Moses prepares Israel for as she gets ready to settle into the promised land. The case of the guilty town, the vulnerable wife, the unloved mother and son, the desperate parents, and the cursed criminal. So what we'll do is think about God's response in each of these cases, how they together point us to Jesus, and what it looks like to respond to those who are in helpless situations today. So let's jump right into it. Guilty, uh, helpless case number one, the guilty town. Now I suspect many of us have felt helpless in guilt at some stage. Perhaps we've felt the guilt of lying to our parents to get out of trouble or betraying a friend's confidence. Uh, when guilt comes, it feels like a kind of dark cloud is just hanging over us that never leaves. Well, there's a dark cloud hanging of guilt hanging over this theoretical town in verses 1 to 9. In this picture, an innocent man has been found lying dead in a field, verse 1, and it's clear that he's been murdered. Uh, but what isn't clear is who the killer is. No one saw it happen. No one knows who did it. But while the killer may have disappeared, the guilt from the crime certainly hasn't. 
Notice that the guilt still hovers over the nearest town to the crime scene like a bad smell. Verse 2. And this town was the likely home of the killer, that's why. It was in a sense responsible for him and as such kind of absorbs part of the guilt of this grave sin. Now just imagine being one of the residents in that town, living under that cloud of guilt, the threat of God's judgment looming over you. Uh, Back in high school, we were forced to learn Shakespeare. Um, It's always an interesting mix when it's country, state, school and Shakespeare coming together. Uh, But we had to learn Shakespeare's play Macbeth. And now I've forgotten almost all of that, uh, but there's one line that I will never forget. Out, damn spot, out, I say. This is the helpless cry of Lady Macbeth, who after talking her husband into murdering the king, is so racked with guilt that she is driven to insanity and then death. You see, as far as Lady Macbeth is concerned, nothing can wash the spot of blood away from her hands. And when I was Googling this quote, I was reminded actually of the following words spoken by the doctor who is brought in to help her and give aid to her. When he sees her ranting, he says, more needs she the divine than the physician. God, God forgive us all. See, what does that actually mean? It means this lady doesn't need a doc's medicine. She needs God's forgiveness. And actually, it's the same with this town in Israel. They have blood on their hands, and they need the divine to forgive them. And notice that's exactly the help God promises to give. Look at verse 3. The elders are told to get a heifer that's young and vibrant, a sign of life and vitality, and then lead it down to a valley beside a flowing stream and break its neck as a sacrifice to atone for the sin. God provides a way out of the helplessness of guilt through the sacrificed animal. The cow cops the judgment, the people go free. See, only then will the town have clean hands, free from spot. And look at how the words in verse 6 and following emphasize this. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent person. Then the bloodshed will be atoned for, and you will have purged yourself the guilt of shedding innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord." See, this picture provides a a wonderful reminder that God is gracious to the guilty. He wants to help them while at the same time maintaining his justice. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you think of God a bit more like just an angry headmaster up in the sky. Someone that's just always looking out for another reason just to whack you with the cane. Now, this picture actually shows us that God is actually kind to guilty people by taking away their sin through a sacrifice of atonement. If you're feeling helpless in guilt tonight, actually you too can know the joy of clean hands 
and forgiven lives through trusting in God's greater sacrifice of his son Jesus, which we're going to think about a little bit more shortly. But it's actually important to see what is happening here. God sees this guilty town. He actually cares about them and he acts in his law to help them. Well, second, the case of the vulnerable wife. Uh, The four people I love most in this world are female. Uh, My wife and my three daughters. And let me tell you, there are a few things in life that scare me more than the thought that one of my precious daughters will end up stuck in a relationship with some kind of dodgy bloke. Uh, I recoil at the thought of one of them as a vulnerable woman living with an abusive man, someone who would treat them like garbage and use his power to simply get what he wants. And actually, that's why I own a shotgun. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, But what comforts me about verses 10 to 14 is the knowledge that God actually doesn't want dodgy blokes taking advantage of vulnerable women either. And he actually cares a lot more than any of us dads. You see, these verses in 10 to 14 envisage a time of war when Israel fights against her enemies, defeats them, and starts taking captives from a conquered city in verse 10. Now, for most ancient nations, the practice of soldiers following a conquered uh, victory in war was as simple as it was horrific. Rape, pillage, plunder. And you see, female victims of war were completely at the mercy of the foreign captors who felt entitled to use them and abuse them for their own sexual pleasure. But this is not to happen in Israel. See, verse 11 actually sort of walks us through a scenario. It paints a picture of an Israelite soldier being attracted to one of the captive women as she's being led out of that conquered city. Now, just try and put yourself in the shoes of that captive woman for a moment. Okay, so you don't speak your captor's language. You don't understand what's being said. Uh, The support of your friends and family are gone. Your mind is consumed with fear as you kind of play out every possible scenario that you see coming your way you actually feel completely vulnerable and helpless. But you see, it's not just the Israelite soldier who has his eye on this woman, is it? Actually, God sees her too. Uh, He sees her in her helpless state and he acts to protect her. You see, this law makes sure that this woman is not abused in the heat of the moment, but actually treated with respect and dignity. And I think you see it in sort of four notable ways. Firstly, the Israelite soldier is told that there is to be no sexual activity outside the secure confines of marriage. Second, before marriage even happens, this woman's given the right to mourn for her father and mother, verse 13, for a full month. Her grief must be respected. Thirdly, if marriage does take place, she is given the dignified status of a wife, not just a slave girl or a concubine in the house. 
See, look at the end of verse 13. Then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. She is not to be treated like a second-class person in the household. And number four, she's actually safeguarded against being treated like property. I don't know if you noticed that. But you see, if the new husband proves to be a total jerk and he breaks his covenant with her in marriage, well, if that happens, she's actually permitted to leave the marriage without consequence and go wherever she wishes, verse 14. You must not sell her and treat her as a slave since you have dishonoured her. You see what God's saying here in his law? She isn't property. She's precious. Uh, The Age reported recently on an interview that took place uh, on the BBC with Virginia Goofrey, who appears to have been one of the female victims of Jeffrey Epstein's teenage sex trafficking scandal. And in the interview, uh, Virginia spoke of helplessness, coercion, sexual abuse by rich and powerful men. That was quite a heartbreaking interview, actually. And at one point in the interview, she said, it was a wicked time in my life. It was a really scary time in my life. These powerful people were my chains. And you see, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal should repulse us as Christians. These were young and vulnerable girls being passed around for pleasure. And God is saying to Israel, don't you dare do likewise. These vulnerable women are not property, they are precious. So you treat them with dignity and respect. In Psalm 146, verse 9, we read this, The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. See, the Lord cares about vulnerable people. He cares about the vulnerable wife here. Actually, we should too. God sees this woman's helplessness. He cares about her. He helps her. Helpless case number three, the unloved mother and son. Uh, Ali Weasel, the the Jewish author and Holocaust survivor, uh, famously wrote these words, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's kind of saying, I simply don't care about you or your suffering. And see, I wonder if you've experienced that kind of attitude from anyone in your life. Maybe you've actually experienced the horror of that kind of attitude in your actual family. The person or people that should have loved you the most were actually the most indifferent towards you. And actually that's kind of exactly the case that's envisaged here in verses 15 and 17. So let's consider it. A man has two wives, which by the way is actually something that the Bible never endorses, but rather regulates in loving ways in a time and culture in which it was commonplace. So the Bible doesn't endorse uh, multiple wives, but regulates the practice where it happens in time and history. Uh, But let's go back to it. So a man has two wives, but loves one and not the other, verse 15. 
Now, both wives bear him sons, we're told, but it's actually the unloved wife who bears him the firstborn son. And so in this time and culture, a double share of the inheritance should rightly go to the son of the unloved wife. You see, this guy's heart's not beating for that son, is it? So he's thinking, but I actually love the other wife. Uh, I don't really care about her. Uh, And I want my son with my favorite wife to get the double share, so I might actually just go ahead and write that into my will. Now, in this time and culture, the unloved wife and son would have been completely helpless in this power imbalance, patriarchal society. But you see, this unloved mother and son are not hidden from God's sight in this household, are they? God sees them, he cares about them, and he acts in this law to help them. Verse 16, the father must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn. Don't be evil and play favorites with your sons. Verse 17, he must acknowledge, not ignore, the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. And just look at the dignity that God places on this forgotten boy. In verse 17, it says, That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. You see, like the vulnerable wife we just read about, God imparts worth and value to the unloved son. He's not to be treated as an inconvenience or a disappointment. He's to be treated as the first sign of his father's strength. I know there are a number of you here tonight who perhaps feel as though your parents failed you as kids. Perhaps you still feel like they are failing you a bit. Maybe your parents played favorites with you and your siblings. Maybe they simply ignored you. Maybe they were overly angry, dishonest, untrustworthy, and just pretty horrible to be around. Maybe you were made to feel worthless. Well, God's word here actually testifies to how wrong that was. But it also is a reminder to you that you actually do have worth in God's sight. You see, God sees the unloved mother and son here. He cares about them, and he acts to help them in their helplessness. Helpless case number four, the desperate parents. I remember experiencing the desperation of a mother and father many years ago over the phone. I had rung to ask them if they could collect their teenage child from a youth event that I was running uh, because their behavior was just going out of control. Uh, But what the parents said to me on the phone, they were both on the phone with me, um, kind of like shocked me. I said, we're sorry, but there's really nothing we can do. Uh, They won't listen to us. And we can't force them into the car. So we can't actually come right now. I remember thinking, that just sounds helpless. 
and that was my only port of call for help, now I feel helpless. Well, it's helpless parents we see in verses 18 to 21, isn't it? You see, these parents are at their wits' end. Their son is out of control and nothing they do seems to work. They've been trying to discipline their son, but he just won't listen to them or obey them, verse 18. They're helpless. But really, it's the son who's looking pretty helpless too, isn't it? In verse 18, we read that he is stubborn and rebellious. Again, in verse 20, stubborn and rebellious. Also in verse 20, glutton and drunkard. Now, this isn't just some naughty boy. This is likely a a young adult who is persistently and willingly rebelling against the good guidance and care of his parents. While they try and discipline him, he's giving them the metaphorical finger. You see, this is a household of helplessness, and God says enough. This destructive chaos must come to an end. Take him to the elders. And when you're there, say in verse 20, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Now we recoil at these words, I think. It seems so harsh. Stone to death. But we need to remember that God is actually just. That's actually been the consistent message through Deuteronomy. God is just and he never brings punishment that doesn't fit the crime. And that's probably a helpful way to look at what's going on here. The crime is actually much worse than we would naturally think. See, I mean, in our eyes, we read this and we just think a harmless schoolie on holidays with his mates. But in God's eyes, what this son is doing here is seriously evil. This son was at risk of squandering his family's portion of the land that God had given to them, kind of like a compulsive gambler who bets away his home and life savings. But more than that, this son was actually in the process of squandering his relationship with God. And if he was allowed to influence others, perhaps their relationship with God too. You see, it was actually through parents that children came to know and trust in their saving God. Uh, We saw that back in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 9, it says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget these things that your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. See, life comes through listening. That's why the commandment to honour your father and mother, the fifth commandment, came to Israel with a promise. In verse 16, chapter 5, that you, children, may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You see, in giving his parents the proverbial finger, his son was actually giving the finger to God. And in doing so, partying his way into God's judgment. You see, this law stood as a serious warning to the young people of Israel. 
verse 21. It showed them the seriousness of rebelling against their parents and rejecting their saving God. This law strengthened the arm of desperate parents who could say to their child, if you keep doing this, if you keep rejecting us and the law that God has given you, well, look at what God says must happen. And actually, in God's mercy, it would, have, would actually help the rebellious child. They would hear about the punishment in this law, think about what they actually deserve, fear for their lives, and actually repent. You see, God cares about desperate parents and their rebellious children, and so should we. When we see parents burdened by rebellious children, we should be praying for them and supporting them as a community. If the situation is getting violent, well, we need to support the family by helping uh, them find alternative accommodation for the child. Or perhaps offering our own home uh, for the other children in the household to get, have a break from it all. Now, we're not called to stone the rebellious child to death now in God's kingdom, but we are called as a community to reinforce the message of Christian parents to their children, that willful and persistent rebellion to God will bring about his judgment. But repentance and faith in Jesus will bring about God's blessing. And many of us know that there are times in life when that message comes across better, when it's actually given by someone who perhaps isn't the parent. God sees this helpless household, he cares, and he acts to help through his law. Finally, the helpless case of the cursed criminal. Uh, this is perhaps uh, one of the most helpless cases of all in this picture. Uh, you have a man who was convicted of a crime worthy of death, verse 21. He's executed for his sin and he's placed upon a pole so that all may know and be warned about the curse that comes with breaking God's law. And it's a helpless picture. Now, the man is cursed for his dead body, uh, cursed and his dead body exposed. And just imagine the grief of his relatives. Uh, not only are they devastated by his sin, now they are in anguish at the sight of their son or brother or cousin hanging there. But you see, even in this final tragic moment, God sees, God cares, God acts. Now, in most other nations of this time, an executed criminal would have been left overnight exposed. His body would have been torn to pieces by scavenging animals. Uh, it was a gruesome practice that uh, was designed to heap shame upon shame. Uh, but notice here that God doesn't let that happen. This man's body is to be buried the same day, verse 23. His family hasn't sinned, and it would be cruel to make them witness such a grisly scene. But it's actually more than that. God doesn't want this body desecrating the land that his people occupy. The land is supposed to be an ongoing source of blessing and life for Israel, not an ongoing source of curse and death. To bury the body is a sign that the land and community is now free from the curse that is associated with this man's sin. See, even in the helpless case of a cursed criminal, God sees, he cares, and he acts through his law to help. 
So what do these five cases of helplessness tell us? Well, I think they tell us that God has a heart for the helpless. He sees people in their distress, he cares about them and the people in their lives, and he acts to help them. And in fact, it's this heart of helplessness that we see on full display when God sends his son Jesus into the world. You see, the Bible describes all people as those who are completely helpless in sin. We've all shaken the proverbial fist at God and said, I don't need you calling the shots in my life. I'm going to live on my terms, not yours. And actually, in the parable of the lost son in Luke 15, Jesus actually compares sinners to someone like the rebellious son that we've just thought about. People who have given the finger to a loving God. See, this attitude of rebellion to God might not always express itself in big and obvious ways like the rebel son, but it is actually deeply rooted in all of us. Think about it. God calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But we rebel against God when we envy what our neighbor has, when we lust, lust after him or her or hate a neighbor in our heart. See, every person is guilty of sin. Every person is actually like the town in verses nine to one to nine, guilty. Every person is actually like the cursed criminal in case five, deserving of judgment and death for our sin. Every person is guilty, cursed and helpless. But look at how God comes to our rescue in Jesus. See, so read with me Romans 5, 6 to 8 on the screen. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that is, helpless in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus is God's help for helpless sinners. Through his death on the cross, Jesus becomes the sacrifice that atones for our sin and removes our guilt forever. Through faith in Jesus, we are set free from the curse that falls on lawbreakers because Jesus willingly took our curse upon himself at the cross. Paul actually references this chapter of Deuteronomy in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone who, hang, who is hung on a pole is cursed. Jesus, God's help for helpless sinners. Uh, a few Christmases ago, the kids and I created a new Christmas decoration for the tree. Uh, it's been getting used, this decoration, each year since, it's a household favourite. Um, among the baubles and the tinsel hangs on our Christmas tree a little man shaking his fist at God with 1 Timothy 1.15 written on his chest, which reads, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, for the past few years, this little guy has been reminding us of the great truth of Christmas, that God sent his son to save helpless sinners like us. 
Jesus died for our sins. God raised him from the dead and has made him Lord of all. Every helpless sinner who now calls on Jesus will be forgiven and brought into an eternal relationship with the living God. And as for those of you who feel particularly vulnerable, loveless or desperate in the situations you are in in life, well, in Jesus, in trusting him, you can rest assured that he sees you, that he cares about you, and that he acts to help you. You see, for the vulnerable person, Jesus keeps you eternally secure in his care and will actually bring to account all acts of evil ever done to you at the final judgment. For the unloved person, Jesus brings you into the unimaginable love of God, the love that did not, with, or did not hold back his son for sinners. For the desperate person, Jesus promises to give daily grace and wisdom and endurance. And actually, one day, Jesus will return and take us all out of this sinful, stained world and into our eternal home where there is, uh, with him, where there is no more abuse or danger or lovelessness or neglect, guilt or curse. In Revelation 21, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and, and God will himself be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, the old order of helplessness, has passed away. Uh, if you don't yet know Jesus as your saviour, or would simply like some reassurance of his love and care for you if you trust him already, then come and speak to me after the service, or Neil, or a Christian that you know. But we're not yet in the new heavens and the new earth, are we? Sin and, and all the helpless situations that flow from it are still a reality in our world. And actually, that just reminds us how important it is to keep living as people who show genuine love to the helpless in our community, like God demonstrates in Deuteronomy 21. The Apostle James tells us that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, God wants us to help to love the helpless like he does. See them, care them, care about them, love them. This is how we must treat those who are burdened by guilt, those who are in vulnerable circumstances, children or parents in loveless or abusive families. See, care, help. And just let me give you a scenario that kind of taps into this as we close. Let's say you get chatting with your neighbour over the fence and she shares with you, through tears, how her partner often gets angry with her and how it all occasionally gets out of control and she just becomes incredibly unsafe. How do you respond in that conversation? How do you respond to her? Well, I think Deuteronomy 21 tells us that we need to imitate the heart of God and care about what's actually going on here. In fact, as people who have received help in our helpless state, shouldn't we be the first to give help to others when they're helpless? 
So you choose to see this woman in her helpless state. You don't let the comment pass by. You don't simply rationalize it away. You see her as someone who is valuable, but also vulnerable at this point. And also you choose to care. To cultivate a compassionate heart, you try and put yourself in her shoes. You think, how terrified would I be to live in her situation? I really want someone to care about me. And also you choose to help. You tell her that you're praying for her, that God, uh, that God would protect her in her circumstances, that she would come to know his deep care for her in Jesus, the one who dies for her sins. But you also advise her on what options she has in terms of reporting criminal behaviour and seeking protection through the courts. Perhaps you offer her another place for her to stay. Maybe not your place if it's too close, but maybe you bring the community of believers in. Maybe there's another older couple in the congregation that would be willing to have her stay with them for a little while. See, now I'm sure that in many situations like this, we fail to love properly or We'll make mistakes and we'll probably need to try again. But let us actually pray that in in grateful obedience to God, we would be like him and become people who see, care and help. Uh, As we close, William Wilberforce, uh, the 18th century Christian politician who fought to end slavery in the British Empire, put it like this. True Christians consider themselves not as satisfying some rigorous creditor, but as discharging a debt of gratitude. You see, Wilberforce wasn't trying to set people free from the helpless situation of slavery. He wasn't doing that just to earn his way into God's good books. He did it because he himself knew the blessing of being freed from his own helpless state of sin through faith in Jesus. Let's pray that we too might be captivated by Jesus' saving help and give ourselves to helping those who are helpless. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our helpless state, you chose to help and save us. Thank you that in your great love, you chose to send your son Jesus. Thank you that he became that sacrifice of atonement for our sin. Thank you that he became a curse for us so that we would receive your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.